Happy Sunday. You're listening to WVEWLP, Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. We're also streaming live online at WVEW.org. And this is Indigo Radio. We're here every Sunday at noon, and we also replay on Mondays. We're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. Our shows are also recorded and then uploaded to SoundCloud and iTunes. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. This is Anna for Indigo, and I am also an educator with the Spark Teacher Training Institute here in Southern Vermont and a current doctoral student at UMass Amherst studying community health education. And today I air a conversation I had with five of my UMass undergraduate public health students. This past semester, I had five students help me with my current research, which explores the impact of intimate partner violence on women in rural areas. Intimate partner violence is a huge public health issue that impacts in the U.S. about one in four women. I was just reading a book this morning. It's a book by Rachel Louise Snyder called No Visible Bruises. And it's about uh, domestic violence in the United States. And I was reading some shocking statistics. Uh, In 2017 alone, 50,000 women around the world were killed by partners or family members. And the United Nations called the home, quote, the most dangerous place for women. And although, of course, there's uh, growing awareness around how men can be victims of violence uh, and how trans women especially experience high rates of violence, gender-based violence, the overwhelming majority of victims, specifically around domestic violence, about 85% are today still women and girls. Domestic violence medical costs top more than $8 billion annually for taxpayers in the U.S. and cause, victim, cause victims to lose more than 8 million workdays each year. Domestic violence is also a direct cause of homelessness for more than half of homeless women in the U.S. and overall the third leading cause of homelessness in the country. The other um, connection that I think is really important to make is that the there's a group called Every Town for Gun Safety, uh, and in 2017 they published a report that said that 54% of mass shootings in America today involved domestic or family violence. And this writer says that, um, Rachel Snyder, she says, it's not that domestic violence predicts mass shootings, it's that mass shootings more than half the time are domestic violence. Uh, And she goes on to um, give a couple examples of that. I mean, Adam Lanza of Newtown, Connecticut, uh, who did the, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, he um, started his killing spree at home with his mother. And it's and domestic violence is also in the background of, of many of these shootings. So Omar Mateen, who killed 49 people at the Orlando Pulse nightclub in, in June 2016, he had strangled his first wife. So yeah, in... in a disturbingly amount of these mass shootings have a history of domestic violence in their background. So the focus of of this study was around the voices of rural women. And it's important to note that although the the incidences of of rural and urban violence, violence are comparable, there is evidence to suggest that the that some characteristics of rural areas, for instance, like the the geographical isolation, can lead to exasperated violence uh, and has more of a, it can lead to more extreme forms of violence. So we're going to head in to take a bow by Rihanna and uh, we'll be back with the interview. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh. 
And you can tell us anything. I, you're all UMass public health students, but I know some of you have like, you know, two or five different majors that you want to say. <laughs> and maybe what year you are. And yeah, anything else. It, we, we don't often have college students on our show. So uh, anything that you would like our listeners to know as a college student. Siobhan, I'm going to start with you. My name is Siobhan and I'm a senior public health student at UMass. I also have a minor in psychology with more of a focus in child development and child life. Hello, my name is Sapria. I'm a junior public health and economics student here at UMass. Hi, I'm Jackie. I'm a senior public health student here at UMass. And Jackie, you're so sad to be graduating, right? Yes, very sad. I could like hear it in that introduction. No, I wish I could be in college forever. (laughs) Okay, Liz. Hi, I'm Liz. I'm a senior public health major with a focus in maternal and child health. Fun fact, I've been on this radio show before and I'm excited to be back. (laughs) Liz is a reoccurring guest on on Indigo Radio. (laughs) Okay, and Amy? Hi, I'm Amy. I'm also a senior public health student at UMass, and I have a secondary major in psychology. Nice. Okay, great. We have spent the semester learning together about gender-based violence, or some people say intimate partner violence, specifically in rural New England. And you have all been part of this team, which has been awesome. And I thank you so much for all of your work. And I would love to just start this by asking you uh, if anyone would like to speak to how this overall process has been for you. I can start us off. Right. So for me, um, I didn't really know what ethnography was before doing this study. And this is a type of research I've never done before. So it's very interesting to kind of be involved in the day of day of what we're studying, which is intimate partner violence. And it was also very interesting to kind of trace it to a larger like social, socioeconomic, and um, political kind of relation within the systems um, that they're um, working under. So that was very interesting to kind of do this method of research. Yeah, I like that actually, how you said, because ethnography, that key is the the day-to-day, but how everything in our day-to-day does connect, right, to the larger world that we're living in. Uh, Does anyone else want to say anything about that or add to what Supriya said? Well, I feel like I was so excited when I heard that it was going to be ethnographic research. I was sort of introduced a little bit to it in one of my previous classes on reproductive justice. And I just love that kind of research because it is right from the source. You're not having 
these academics sort of like guess and make hypotheses about these populations, you are asking them. And I feel like that is so what is missing from so many, so many different fields. And the way we do work is so making so many assumptions. There's just so many assumptions made about, you know, oh, how can we get these people to do this thing that is good for them, you know? And there's so not enough of just asking people, what has your experience been? What do you need? Mm -hmm. And I think that is what ethnography is getting to. I was really happy to participate in that. Great. Anyone else want to add anything? Just thinking about the overall process? I know I was really nervous to code because I really had no idea what you meant by coding. I was like, we could be typing numbers into a computer for all I know. But I'm really happy that I learned how to do it. And I actually think it's kind of fun. It's like kind of like a puzzle, I feel. Yeah, so Jackie, tell me, because a lot of our listeners maybe don't know what coding is, right? So with uh, interviews, tell, tell us what coding is. How would you describe it? I, li- I like the puzzle analogy, but tell us a little bit more. I would say coding Basically, like you would have a theme, like a parent code, like adverse health effects. And then you have a bunch of child codes that would go under that, like um, physical trauma, you know, um, healthcare services. And basically you just find quotes and like instances of that in the interviews and you highlight instances um, that would match your code. So like if someone said something about having PTSD, for example, in my interview, I would highlight that in the same color um, for the key as my mental health code. Yeah, great. So it's like finding those overall patterns too, right? Yeah. Okay. So th- that that's a, a big piece that I wanted to really focus this interview around is the learning that you got from reading these interviews, transcribing them, listening to them, then coding them, and then together we're analyzing them. And All of you really focused on a couple of themes, and I would love to talk about those as as many as we can, because I think that, as I've probably said to you all, and I know that many of the interviews talk about this, is that intimate partner violence is something that is still very highly stigmatized, uh, happens very frequently, and that there's also specific rural characteristics to it that put people in danger or exasperate the issue in, in ways. So I would love to talk about some of that learning. Who wants to start us out about something that really stood out to them and to talk about that a little bit? One of the, the patterns I saw within the interviews I was working with was regarding like the victim protecting their abuser whether that is like during the relationship before they are ready to leave it or after the the protection came in like several different forms not wanting to call the police on the abuser to ensure that the abuser doesn't get into legal trouble or whether that is maintaining a relationship between the abuser and their children that's not something that we like hear so much about whether it's in the media or like tv shows you always see scenes of like the woman calling police but I think that is not as common as we think because Mm -hmm. even though these victims are being abused it's by someone that they've once thought that they loved so much so it's a pattern of balancing the abuse with trying to love and protect that person at the same time Mm -hmm. yeah I think that that's an important piece that you really pull out is that the and is a very nuanced and complicated piece is that the person who has survived or is experiencing this abuse may love that person. And so that of course would lead to certain choices that are made that might, in the outside world, people say, well, why would that, why would she do something like that? Can you remember any reasons around, or can you say more about the children and protecting the children? Oh, sure. I listened and worked with this one interview where this woman's husband and father of her children was very abusive but at the same time she wanted to create this family lifestyle for her children and be able for her children to have a relationship with her father so although he was very abusive she tried her best to like stay in the relationship for the sake of her children and even after she then left she tried to facilitate meetings between the father and the children just so they could grow up 
with a loving father, even though he wasn't being that. Right. I think the other thing too, and I'm going to guess this shows up in so many of your interviews is that there's instances where a woman who is being abused with children is oftentimes so much trying to protect her children and, and is doing that successfully, but that's also not recognized in sort of the, the view of the world or people looking inside of it. Liz, let me ask you, you had looked at, well, two things. One was around the family dynamics and then also revictimization by systems, which is a, a really important one in which we see a lot. I mean, I've seen a lot of that in the work that uh, I've done in the field. Do you want to talk about one of those or both of them? Yeah, I can talk briefly about both of them. I'll start with family dynamics. I think the pattern of like family dynamics stood out a lot to me just because it was like a reoccurring theme that each uh, survivor seemed to like have background with or something to talk about in regards to like their family, whether it be their upbringing or whether it be how they felt supported or unsupported by their family members in regards to getting justice or seeking support with their trauma. So I think it was like really interesting to get that firsthand experience in regards to different areas such as like victim blaming or how cultural and moral beliefs can play a huge role in the lack of support that they receive. That's something that we saw in, I saw in family dynamics. And then moving on to like re-victimization by systems. Re-victimization was actually a term that was introduced to me by um, one of the interviews that I was transcribing. And through that, I like went back into my other interviews and just saw it so, so much more. And then like looking into other interviews as well. And basically re-victimization is when participants or survivors feel are subjected to like experiences or feelings of trauma due to processes relating to like systems at the institutional level. And I think it was like really fascinating and interesting to read and kind of get a sense of these firsthand experiences from these people in regards to the, the many systems that we believe are in place to bring justice for survivors, when in reality, there are so many instances where it doesn't, that many of these issues rooted in, in our society are made up by these institutions that are the basis of our society. Hmm. Liz, can you share if you have, do you have an example that you could kind of share so we, we can get a clear, like concrete example of something that happens? In one interview, uh, one woman was saying how she wrote an essay for her college college application, talking about how she was assaulted by her partner at the time and how she like faced this trauma. And then her teacher at the time pulled her aside and told her that she needs to rewrite her essay. So it's just like instances um, in regards to like that situation where like professors and teachers should really be checking in on their students. Mm -hmm. But like examples like these show that like these instances and these situations and experiences are going to live with survivors for like the rest of our lives and like continue to traumatize them and prevent them from speaking out. I want to ask the, the rest of the group in terms of what Liz is talking about for re-victimization by different systems. Do any of you have thoughts around that or anything that stood out in some of the ones that you listened to around being re-victimized? That it's not just about the abusive partner, that it kind of trickles out. I've worked with an interview that talked a lot about DCF and re-victimization around um, that system. This woman, her her DCF case began because of her partner's abuse. And it was deemed since she was still in that relationship that it wasn't a safe place for her children. And they were taken. And then after she got out of that relationship, she is still struggling to get those children back into her care. And she just feels as though she's not being understood by her caseworker or by the judges she's seeing and that they are making her seem like the the bad parent when it was it was a situation that her herself was in and also her children mm -hmm. and she's not finding that same support from DCF that she feels that she deserves yeah Amy let me ask you because I, I'm just thinking about the other systems and one of them of course is housing and I know that you did a lot around housing can you talk to us a little bit about that and, and what you found in terms of violence and, and housing? 
there was a really good example of re-victimization in the housing system. In one of my interviews, the participant, they wanted to leave and they wanted to find new housing, but they are very low income. And they said they've always been on like social security. They wanted to get on the section housing list, but it's like a super long, a super long wait list. And they were told by someone at a crisis center that like, if they went to a domestic violence shelter, that they would get bumped up. And if they talked to this person, if they talked to that person, like all these jumping through hoops to get more priority in housing to get out of this abusive situation. And so they ended up going to a shelter, even switching between shelters because they didn't feel safe at one. They wanted to go to another. Like they were exposed to more violence, not at them, but just being around it in the shelter. And that is like a perfect example of rape victimization. They should be able to get that support if they are low income, if they qualify for section eight, it shouldn't take that much time for them to be, to get those resources and get housing, which is so essential. That's one thing that really came up was how essential housing was for distancing and becoming independent from uh, their abusers was even if they weren't dealing with uh, affordability issues, it was it was the moving was a central aspect to escaping. And, and that's what came up in terms of what people thought could be done better is I wish that housing were easier. You know, I wish there was a community living space for women or people escaping these situations. Having that community support in housing connected to livelihood that would just be a huge a step forward and a world a bit more perfect than this one but housing is like a key thing that can obstruct someone from even fleeing or getting out of a, of a violent situation that's definitely a huge i think key piece is the housing for sure I certainly haven't been shopping for any new shoes And I certainly haven't been spreading myself around I still only travel by foot and by foot it's a slow climb But I'm good at being uncomfortable so I can't stop changing all the time I notice that my opponent is always on the go Go slow so as not to focus And I notice He'll let you ride with any guide As long as they go fast From whence he came But he's no good at being uncomfortable So we can't stop staying exactly the same If there was a better way to go Then it would find me I can't help it The road just rolls out behind me Be kind to me are treating me mean I'll make the most of it I'm an extraordinary machine I seem to you to seek a new disaster every day you deem me due to clean my view and be at peace and lay I mean to prove I mean to move in my own way and say I've been getting along for long before you came into the play I am the baby of the family it happens so everybody cares and wears the sheep's clothes while the chaperone curious you're looking down your nose at me while you appease courteous to try and help but let me set your mind at ease Extraordinary Machine by Fiona Apple we're going to go back to my conversation with my five undergraduate public health students from UMass Amherst. And if you're just joining us, this is Anna for Indigo Radio. And we are talking all about intimate partner violence in a rural setting. Okay, let me go to uh, Supriya. So these are also two really important issues that you kind of looked into was isolation and then also 
finances and financial abuse, which are, are two also very key and things that show up over and over again in, in abusive relationships. Can you start with finances and tell us a little bit about what you found there? Or what? And I know there's like a number of things there. So maybe some of the things that really stood out to you around that. Yeah. So financial abuse is definitely a huge part of intimate partner violence. And it um, definitely is like a main reason as to why women are not able to leave just because they um, can't be financially independent. And one thing that really stood out to me was just the abuser's almost obsession to kind of control how or like how much or like where their partner worked. Um, But they, the men were typically in charge of savings, spendings. They would determine like what they spent their money on. They might even just totally blow it and, um, like cigarettes was like a big one for one of these women. So it's just very interesting because finances are of course like a part um, as being able to afford housing, being able to afford food, just being able to move on in general yeah. um, after leaving this relationship. So the fact that so many of these women were financially like tethered to these men um, was a big role as to why um, they weren't able to leave in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, your two themes and and things that you found are very much tied together because I think that isolation, of course, plays into that. And uh, I would love for you to tell us if there's any story or anything that stood out to you around the isolation, because there are some pretty, I think, key ones, especially because of the rural geography of, of this study, too. Yeah, for sure. And I didn't even realize how much an impact like living in a rural area would have impacted isolation because it's not just physically being away from everyone. It's also the fact that like if you do live in a small area, chances are people know both the partner and the abuser. So they have a tend to have a relationship with both. There's not a lot of privacy really about what goes on. And that being said, it's like people usually are aware that the abuse is happening, but they rarely ever say anything. And that being said too, like there are services available that people might know of, even if the victim themselves doesn't know about them. Living in a rural area, it's very hard to access it, and they might just not know it just because it's very hard to get visibility in rural areas just because everything's so spread out. Yeah, the women just feel so alone when they're in these isolated um, situations. Yeah, you know, this is really interesting what you said, is that there's not a lot of privacy, but also people don't say anything. And that's something that I have heard come up over and over again is that no one says anything. And so even when you're in these small places where it's like, oh, everyone knows everyone's business. Or I remember talking to a woman that worked in a store when I was in one of these rural areas. And she said, uh, well, everyone's like laundry is hanging out to dry. But then you also hear over and over again that no one said anything. I even, I even talked to women that the violence happened out in public and no one said anything. So this is a question actually for all of you that I'm, is it a question that I would also ask the people I was interviewing is what do you think we need to do around that? Like, what is your thought around the isolation of intimate partner violence and what the wider community needs to do? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think we like kind of need to just determine the difference between like minding your own business and completely like ignoring someone who's like clearly in need of help. You don't need to be nosy. Cause I feel like that's how people feel. And like, if something's messy, like they're like, Oh, that's like a private thing. Mm-hmm. But I had like an interview where a woman was in like a hotel and she was trying to get away and she was like crying. Partner was like yelling at her and like pushing her and like physically restraining her from leaving. And she said like, not a single person said anything. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously the line of you need to help someone who's in need. And she said, even if someone just could could give me the phone to call 911, mm. it would have just helped. So yeah, I think maybe like start straying away from the idea that, oh, like I don't want to be nosy. Like I'm just going to mind my own business because that's not always the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyone else got thoughts? Yeah. On that? Yeah, Amy. Yeah, I feel like just we ha- generally have a culture that's like so individualized you know like we're in our own little bubble they're in their little bubble you know even in a small community where everyone knows each other and each other's business it's on such a surface level we don't have this like ability culturally to be like hey I want to involve myself in your life you know I want to open up a space where we can be vulnerable with each other and offer each other help 
And that is just what we need because people aren't going to get the help if there's, if people aren't opening themselves up to them, even just saying, how are you doing? You know, is everything okay? That gets the ball rolling, but like you need to be available. So I'm also curious, just while we're on the subject of the isolation and then knowing that this is still kind of such a private issue uh, and then you all hearing these survivors' voices who are now looking back on their relationship, has it had any impact on your own thinking around this issue and what you might do yourself? If you, meaning like if you suspected a, a friend or someone on, you know, a college campus is a whole nother little microcosm of the world. Yeah, has it had any impact or impact, like influenced your thinking on any of that at all? Siobhan, were you gonna say something? Yeah, I think what I've gathered from a lot of these interviews is that these women are saying that at the time, if someone would have asked if they're okay, if they, or if they need help, their answer probably would have been no. But it's the fact that they know that someone cared enough to ask, which could like influence their later decisions to then reach out to get help or to make the decision to leave the relationship. And it's also, I've heard that like persistence is a big deal or just saying like, my phone is always on for you or let me know when you need help, like I'm here for you and just reminding them. Because a lot of these women, as we were talking about, is like the isolation and like being isolated from their friends and family. But like, even just like shooting like a text saying like, how are you doing? Are you okay? Like once a week makes, even if they don't respond, that makes like a a big difference for them. And like knowing that someone out there cares and knows what's happening and cares enough to just check up on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Supriya, you were going to say something, yeah? Yeah, it's almost like some of these women don't even know that they're being abused. Others might think like their situation isn't that bad. They don't know the warning signs. They don't realize how violent their situation actually is. One woman, when she went to like a crisis center, they showed her, I think it was called like the wheel of control. She was like, this is my life down to a T, you know, like on the wheel. So I think, yeah, just like making the warning signs more visible so people can spot the signs of abuse, not just like in themselves, but if they think they suspect someone else is like being abused everyone will be like aware that like if someone's being isolated or like not able to talk to them that much that's like a form of um social isolation and that's a, a sign of abuse mm-hmm. so i think just like making kind of like these signs more visible for everyone might be beneficial mm-hmm. yeah that's a great point and it brings up another question for me if at all it makes you reflect on your own learning as a teen or into college about healthy relationships and dating. And Liz, can I direct this question to you? Because didn't you write a paper, you did something for me around teen sex ed or pregnancy? Yeah, I I wrote a paper for about teen pregnancy in rural populations. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on healthy sex ed and relationships and in the midst of like all these interviews swirling in your head too and what you think we could be doing better I think the main thing that was like going through my head in regards to not only looking back at my paper that I wrote for you but in the interviews but also like in my own life is the importance about normalizing talking about this stuff and normalizing like educating people about sex ed and healthy relationships because I think it was mentioned before in our society, it's very, you know, we care about our own issues and we don't really look out for other people. And this is something that like we need to make know of and like make a dramatic shift in, in order to see progress in our society mm-hmm. and to really normalize talking about this stuff to let people know, like, this is not okay. Like, because in my interviews, a lot of people's said like they didn't even know that something was wrong because they weren't educated they didn't know like this wasn't normal a lot of them it was for their first relationship or they didn't have the education behind knowing what a healthy relationship was um so i think education is like a huge aspect and i think education can really change a way that you react to something if someone ever opens up to you about stuff when i think about my own life right now i can think about what I've transcribed, but like just hearing what they've had to say really made me like look back on like 
instances where someone has opened up to me about stuff and how I could have reacted differently or how I could have helped them better mm-hmm. I think like right now it's like hard when you're in a college student or like you're going into college and you don't really realize how prevalent the issue is until you go through it and like until you know you're surrounded by it and like I don't ever I don't think like any 20 20 21 year old is equipped to handle fully a situation perfectly mm-hmm. but like educating your peers and educating people on healthy relationships, sexual education, the signs of abuse are ways to improve that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone else have thoughts on that? Siobhan? Yeah. I think I'm trying to talk about kind of what Liz was saying about like college campuses and like not knowing what to say or what to do, I think is really hard with like the media we see. I feel like TV shows and social media like romanticize what they call like toxic relationships, which are just abusive relationships and what we're seeing on tv is young teenage girls not knowing their abuse and thinking it's flattering or they just love me so much and like the show never even like saying that this isn't normal and I think so when all of these high schoolers get like into like the college arena their dating is more prevalent and stuff they're not sure what even dating can look like or what it should look like and I think that's also something like as a society we can do better Uh, like improving upon our sex ed and relationship ed to be like this is tv shows is not what it should look like and tv shows should probably do better as well Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with all that and the the role the media plays and the ways that we're socialized to like behave and think about each other and these trappings of these gender rules, right? That really are, no one fits into really, right? Like, and they can cause so much harm uh, because I think about the ways that in which men and boys are uh, socialized to be, right? And that definitely impacts relationships in the future. Anyone else on that before I move on? I think just to add like what Sean was saying, like, I think there's, a huge emphasis on like IPV being strictly like physical violence right Mm -hmm. and I think it was until I came to college that I like was more educated on the fact that like emotional violence and it's just as bad there are so many issues that come with emotional violence as well and I think there needs to be a bigger emphasis on the other aspects of intimate partner violence not only on like physical violence I totally agree. And that's something that has really solidified in my head after listening to so many of these interviews is how damaging psychological distress and abuse uh, is that I, I also agree with that, that that definitely needs to be discussed more. So let's talk a little bit. And, and Jackie, I want to ask you kind of to start us off here is that you're all public health students and uh gender violence is a a public health issue. And I want to start first with what people think the go-to around health of emotional health and physical health. Uh, and, And this was something that definitely shows up in these interviews. So Jackie, could you talk a little bit about what you concentrated on and what stood out to you around health? So I concentrated on the adverse health effects faced by those who've experienced abuse, so like physical trauma, mental trauma, barriers to getting help. And something that stood out to me was that it just seems like a totally endless cycle. And that's where I feel like public health intervention could be like a lot of help. And that's why I think IPV is a huge public health issue because like the chronic conditions some of these women face for the rest of their lives. One woman I said before, she has complex post-traumatic stress disorder and then she can't sleep because she is just up all night, like making sure her house is secure. And then she wakes up the next day super tired and she's like paranoid that she's tired and that she's not gonna be able to fight someone off. And then I felt like it was just like a total cycle. And she was like going to a therapist, but just like was not helping at the time and it started affecting her children. And now she's worried about her kids and like the adverse health effects that's with her kids. So I feel like I've noticed that it's just a cycle and then there just needs to be like somewhere where like the cycle stops. Mm. Yeah. Can you or anyone else think about the other examples of uh, the health effects? I think one thing that I was or I have thought about in doing these interviews is how much of the 
negative health effects are invisible. It's just made me really think about that. It continues and continues and continues. Does anyone else want to speak to anything that stood out around health? I could say one more thing too. Something I noticed was like the troubled pregnancies and the stress like put on women during pregnancy, just from like going through all this emotional and mental trauma. And then on top of that, like a lot of them have troubled pregnancies because their bodies are like rejecting. And one woman was being like kind of really badly abused during her pregnancy too. So that's kind of something I noticed as well. That's really traumatic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As public health students, can any of you share thoughts on why you think it's important to understand this as a public health issue? And if so, what the public should do? A lot of this will start with making intimate partner violence not a women's issue. It's been a like a women's issue since the beginning. And I think of a lot of the interviews that I, I've listened to, women are like, women know what intimate partner violence is and they they know that they don't like it and that they know that how dangerous it is but men are never in these conversations when the majority of abusers are men so i think the start of like ending these cycles of abuse is to one raise our men differently and give them better resources and then just get more men talking about and like speaking out against these patterns of abuse Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on that in public health? Go ahead, Amy. Um, well, just to piggy, to piggy back off of what uh, Siobhan was just saying, I mean, the more I think about this, the more it just seems ridiculous that we think the way out is like women raising our daughters differently mm-hmm. to, you know, to know how to protect themselves and to have, you know, women working to support each other when they're all going through they're all surviving themselves and having to support other survivors. You're not going to get anywhere with that. You know, it just shows how we are like culturally victim blaming when we think, oh, if we raise our daughters Mm -hmm. to protect themselves better then the abuse won't happen. Abuse happens to people regardless of whether they're prepared or not, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just think about all the times like I will bring these issues up to to my male friends thinking that they they thinking that they get it and they're just shocked every time. It's just not you, they're not exposed. I'm I'm not shocked hearing these things anymore cuz they're so common. Mm. with five of my undergraduate UMass students, and that was Million Reasons by Lady Gaga. 
We're going to go back to the last part of the interview. Thanks for joining us today. Okay, one of the questions I have goes a little bit back to what Supriya, you said at the very beginning of this. You said that ethnography is about the day to day, but that it's also important to link it to like the larger society. One of the readings that we all did was the Kampahi River Collective statement, which was a 1977 statement by a group of left Black feminists who also were speaking about the particular struggles of Black women and violence. And they also felt really strongly that this type of violence must be talked about, not delinked from U.S. imperialism and capitalism and racism within society. Those were, those were kind of their, one of their main messages. And so I'm, I'm wondering what you all think about that. Like you're hearing the minutia, right? Like in these interviews and like really, really, cause you were transcribing and then coding. But what do you think about violence and, and, you know, of course, we're particularly talking about men's violence, as, as one of you pointed out, most intimate violence is done by cis men, uh, even though we, of course, must acknowledge that any, anyone can be violent and also anyone could be on the receiving end, end of violence. And this study didn't particularly look at it, but to acknowledge that uh, trans individuals experience a huge amount of violence gender non-conforming individuals, also boys experience a lot of violence, other men. But anyway, just to, just to come back is, yeah, like, how do, you, how do you think about this? I think that we can get into trouble if we only think about it in a, in a single kind of issue, but I'm, I'm curious what, what your thoughts and, and thinking on, is on this. There was like one reading where that talked about how this is seen as like a patriarchy that, that we need to be the issue here is patriarchy when it's not it's it's really not just patriarchy it's all of these things that are encouraging violence in our system and when violence is the norm for you know the way structurally like structural political economic violence is the norm you know, violence in the home, you know, violence between people interpersonally, like it can't come as a shock because that's what you're encouraging. Mm-hmm. Anyone else got thoughts on that? And like a paper I'm writing for a different class. I thought this was really interesting, like back in kind of colonial days, like in the U.S. or I guess when it wasn't the U.S., they had the rule of thumb that like saying originated from like when they legalized like basically legalized IPV and said that like uh, men could beat their wives as long as like the weapon was as big as the width of their thumb. So I feel like it just stems like from such a deep societal belief. And it's like, it's 2021 and we're still trying to break out of that. Mm, That's a good point too. And I think ties to what Supriya was saying is that you're bringing up that it was put into law I mean, it was, yeah, a piece of actual law that that is like an institutionally misogynistic, both attitude, but actual real law that was allowed. I think that one of my own pushes in in trying to think through this is, I mean, it's similar to what Amy, you were saying, is that it's really important to me to link the, the violence that happens interpersonally to the greater violence um, that stems from US imperialism. And I think that that is a hard connect for people to make because we are so used to individualizing everything. So it becomes about bad men. And then it becomes this issue that is men versus women. And it's a really tricky issue to talk about because as you know, all of you now really, really well, you've heard like the horrific intimate details of violence that is really awful, you know, that is done on an intimate level. And so it is, makes sense to be like, these men are horrible or like these, 
these men are so abusive. But I think that I keep on trying to get at what what's up with these men and, and why did this happen? I don't believe at all that it's innate that, it, that people are born like this. And so what is it then where this kind of violence is accepted, it's normalized, it's put into legislation, it's proliferates in ways. Yeah, how, I guess the big question is, and Siobhan, you brought it up, is like, yeah, men need to get involved in this. And can we also like start connecting it to these larger, the, these other issues around us? Something that I learned yeah. Um, in one of my classes recently was um, slavery wasn't just like a racial thing. It was also a capitalist thing because, you know, like slave labor powered a lot of the U.S.'s economy back then. Yeah. And so a lot of people called slavery like a justified evil or not a justified, a necessary evil, all in the name of capitalism. And you would think that like um, a lot of people would think, no, it's just a race thing. That's why like people did this, like they were racist. But it's like, no, there was a deeper... Um, kind of like almost seeking profit and that never really went away like we can see modern examples of neoliberalism in like other countries where like people's um labors are being exploited resources are being plundered and this is all like still leading to violence like a violent a system of poverty this violence is stemmed from like the justification of capitalism mm. in my opinion I know that's like a bold claim to make too and I know a lot of people will disagree with that but Indigo loves bold claims. So, (laughs) yeah. And I think that your statement around this thing of, oh, it's a necessary evil. People have also said this about colonialism, a necessary evil. That logic says that certain human beings don't matter. That's what that logic just said. And that, in my mind, is, is criminal then why would we have a system in which certain human beings don't matter? Or should we say, do, do most human beings don't matter in a system like that, right? Or a human beings well-being and livelihood. So yeah, I, I think that you're making a, a strong point there. The, the question that comes up for me is that if people are hurt, or if we think about this idea of being like hurt or the word that's used a lot today is trauma, is that, at the core, it's that people are not getting their needs met. And that is then related to I th- the, these, this larger s- system that we live within in which people's needs cannot be met. We, we see that all around us, right? What question, either question or questions are still lingering in your head that you think like we uh, need to continue questioning and, and thinking about around this? What are you still feeling like we need to, to work out here. You know, if, you're, if we're a research team here, right, what do we still need to, to think on, to articulate around this? Um, a thought that comes to mind for me is like looking forward in um, IPV research and policy would be like what type of role we want our crisis centers to like truly take in this, in this problem. And then think about that role and then see what needs to be done to then fit into that role. Because I think right now for a lot of people, these, these systems just aren't working and no one knows what to change and, and how to do that. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks for that, Siobhan. I can go next. Um, yeah, Liz. I think like a thought that continues to linger, or I guess a thought that I've been trying to like stay away from throughout this whole process is me taking it in as like a college student, like how I can use this to like find the perfect way to like help survivors when in reality, there's not really a solid set way to go about it. This is a really big issue. And at the end of the day, I have to continue to like remind myself or like relearn that it's not about me. It's not about us and that we really need to just listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you bring up that that's a point that, yeah, often they just get lumped into like survivor, but that's not the reality at all. I guess the final thought that I had was kind of this perception people have about IPV and how this kind of traumatizes survivors or victims where they prefer to go by for the rest of their lives. And like how, I would love to like unpack like why we have this perception of IPV, like when that kind of came about um, in our lives and why people think it's so messy and like, people love to watch like true crime or like murders and stuff and it's like why 
would we love to like watch that and talk about that but we don't want to talk about high pv hmm. yeah a final thought i'm trying to put my final thought into words i'm feeling like all of the ways that we could like sort of make our systems better for just everyone and vulnerable populations in general will all come back to help people experiencing intimate partner violence. If we, you know, make the housing more accessible to people, if we just make sure people's basic needs are met economically, like that is all going to build a structure that cushions the fall for everyone experiencing IPV. Like you want to escape an abusive situation. You want to know that your community and the systems that make up your community have your back and you're not entering, you're not leaving, you know, an abusive situation and going into a world where you are left to left to fend for yourself. And the system is sort of working against you in many ways. So for me, I'm also pursuing a certificate in civic engagement and uh, public service. And one thing that we've learned is oftentimes when we work with a new community, we go in with like biases or like stereotypes we hold in our head before we even engage with the community. And I think something we need to do is like respect these women's experiences and their, you know, their voices when we move forward, making policies and overall just engaging with the community because too often we're limited by our own biases. Mm. And so we can never fully help the communities we're working with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that comes back to how important, I think Amy may have said it somewhere in the interview around the capturing of of actual people's voices. Yeah. All right. That does it for this week's Indigo Radio. And I want to give a big thank you to my five students that worked so hard all semester. It was awesome working with you all. I want to give a big congrats to the four of them that are graduating. And yeah, thanks for being a part of Indigo Radio and diving into this work with me. And I do want to say that the local uh, domestic and sexual violence organization is the Women's Freedom Center, and their hotline, which is a 24-hour hotline, is 802-254-6954. And we are going to go out this week with Tina Turner I've been loving you too long, and we'll be back next week. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. I've been loving you. Too long. I don't want to stop now. Shout
you, you, you. You can make me do anything you want me to do. And I, I'll even say anything you want me to say. Buy anything you want me to buy. You. If, you, if you just stay and make, and make love to me. If you, if you just make me say, oh, oh baby. Oh, oh baby. Suck it, suck it, suck it to the end.